This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Common Sense with Dan Carlin, Progressive Faith Sermon with Dr. Roger Ray, On the Media, Democracy Now!, Counterspin, and The Young Turks. Part of what makes these situations interesting to me are their predictability. I mean, there's certain, there's certain human elements, and we've talked about this before, connected to the tactic of terrorism. And if you're like me, I've always been fascinated with, with tactics and strategy, and, and it goes, it runs the gamut from obviously, you know, you know, I'm a war gamer and I, I like doing that kind of strategy, but to boxing. And to things where it's all about trying to figure out, you know, approaches and box people in and look at how things work. And, and, and terrorism is an emotional weapon. And human, predictable human responses, especially when you're talking about masses of people instead of individuals, predictable human responses often play into the goals and approach and methods and everything that terrorism employs. It's designed to impact you know, more than just the military situation. The reason it's even called terrorism is, you know, to terrify someone is to take a very human thing, to be afraid and to work on that, right? That's that's that hole you dig deeper every time. So there's an emotional component to this. It may be impossible for us to react in cool, calm, clear-headed ways when these things happen. And if so, then that's something that's built into the use of the strategy and the tactic itself, right? People in large numbers will not behave rationally. They will not think long-term. They will not step back and try to analyze this situation from a cool, logical, long-term perspective because when people are dying and being blown up and they're your family members and you feel unsafe, people just don't do that, right? This, this may be hardwired into who we are, which makes terror as a weapon so unbelievably insidious and still fascinating. And let's remember, terrorism also runs the gamut throughout history. The British thought American colonists shooting behind trees were terrorists. The Germans thought partisans fighting in, you know, the Balkans against their occupation forces, which, by the way, tied down lots of German military forces. They thought they were terrorists. And obviously, you know, people who, people who take pleasure and glee in the killing of innocence and women and children and all that, you know, that, that to me is, is the worst of the worst. And I've said many times, and as have many others, and I think you often hear this from people trying to justify or mitigate what the terrorist side of things does. They'll say, well, you know, you kill women and children in our countries too. You're over here using drones and the vast majority of the people that get killed by the drones are not the people you're after and you kill women and children and blah, blah, blah. Yes, but we don't sit there and celebrate it. It's a mistake. That doesn't excuse it at all and we've often brought this subject up, right? But it is a mistake. We do not celebrate it. There's something weird to the minds of most people when you see people celebrate that. There's that woman's fashionable shoes poking out from under a, you know, shroud laying on a street corner by broken glass outside a cafe. Who the hell celebrates that? It's hard for us to understand, and we want to, we want to kill those people. And that is the normal human response. 
And many people out there, including yours truly, would say, and maybe a justifiable human response, right? If you could get your hands on those people, you'd pretty much be able to justify anything you could do. That is an emotion that is understandable, defensible, predictable, and part of the tactic. If this were a boxing match, I said I like the strategy and tactics in boxing. This is a jab, folks. They are stinging you with a jab. And it makes you mad, so you want to lash out, which is great if you can hit them. If I walk up to some guy on the street, some big dude, and throw a jab at him, he's going to hit me in the face and knock me out. Boom. Don't throw a jab at a guy like that. But if that person can't hit you, if you're Muhammad Ali and you're fighting George Foreman, and they can't hit you, and you hit them with a jab, and they waste precious energy expent in trying to do something that they can't do, that's a tactic. And you do that over and over and over again, and you sting again and again and again, and these giants try to, you know, these giants that can wipe out major nation states, these powerful modern 21st century, I mean, they're, they're not even states, they're, they're giant alliances, NATO, places like that. They're powerless, folks. And this is a very hard thing to think about, that they're powerless. It's always interesting to hear people after these crises say things like, well, you know, finally we have to get serious or something to those effects, as if this whole time we haven't been. We've got to take the gloves off now. What were we doing yesterday? Ted Cruz comes out yesterday, I guess, and says that it's time we stop worrying so much about collateral damage when we go bomb the bad guys. What was the number that just came out recently? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's like... I think it was 9 out of 10, but let's just say if it was 7 out of 10 of the targets we strike are not the targets we're after. They're, they're, the military sometimes considers them because they're in proximity to bad guys, that they must be bad guys too. But we're killing a lot more people that we don't intend to kill than the bad guys themselves. And Ted Cruz's answer to this whole thing is we're not doing that enough. And totally avoiding what makes this problem so unbelievably nasty is you can't just kill everybody. I'm reading Twitter, and you're going up and down, you're reading the responses to the news sites, and there are people that just say, kill them all. Who are they? Muslims? What happens if you kill all the Muslims, all one billion of them, and you turn yourself into Hitler, and you do it because of terrorism? I'm just playing the, I mean, you know, the people that are saying this are whacked, but, but let's just play with it for a second. You turn yourself into that. What happens next week when you're in a free country with freedom of religion and somebody decides, oh, I just uh, read the Quran in an underground, you know, anarchist cookbook type bookstore and I want to be a Muslim? What happens to that person? You crucify them tomorrow, you throw them out of plane, you say you're out of the country. I mean, these Western values that are conflicting with these Islamic ones of these hardliners like the ISIS and Al-Qaeda's out there, this war on terror will destroy those very... They're going to turn us into something like them in an attempt to give them what they deserve and to protect ourselves from retaliation. And yet it's it's almost not human to expect us not to respond to the jab. And if you... Here's the funny thing. If you don't respond to the jab, you could still lose the fight, right? If George Foreman doesn't do something when Muhammad Ali hits him, eventually Muhammad Ali's going to win that fight on points, right? You got jabbed 10,000 times, you didn't hit him once, you lose. So he's got to do something. But if you can't hit him and every time he responds to the jab, he gets more and more and more tired and more susceptible to being knocked out, that's not victory either. There's a reason that terrorism's been around forever, folks. It is very hard to deal with, especially when it's idea-based. 
And the people that have been terrorists over history, by the way, you look at them, there's a reason it's a tactic. It's not a good, evil thing, although I would argue that when it enjoys and celebrates the killing of innocent people, um, I'm not sure what you call that if you don't call it evil, but terrorism hasn't always done that. Part of the reason we had such problems in places like Vietnam, and you don't think we were fighting hard in Vietnam and taking the gloves off, off and everything there, is that the other side would use terrorism. They'd go into these... You know, hamlets and villages that the United States worked very hard to, to bring over to our side of the table and to help us in the war. And they go in at night and somebody, you know, tie the village headman up on a pole with the whole village there, disembowel them. I mean, do terrible things to the people. And that was their way of saying, listen, you help the Americans and we're just going to hurt your loved ones, rape your children, you know, cut your heads off or whatever. It's hard to fight that even in wartime. So who are these people that want us to all of a sudden get serious? You don't think the Nazis were serious in the Balkans in the Second World War? Go look at some of the pictures of the retaliation that they did. Didn't go away. It got worse. How do you fight that? If the Wehrmacht in the Balkans in the Second World War ain't stopping partisans and terrorists, you know, their, their words for it, and we're nowhere near getting as tough as the Nazis on these sorts of things, where they're hanging all these partisans and doing all these things and, and, and you know, killing uh, uh, hostages. I mean, the, the Germans did not mess around with, you know, partisans, right? And yet, there they were. Does it change the situation at all to think about this in those terms? Because they're the complete opposite of how we, we want to and how we expect to and how we will reward our politicians. You know, you're not going to reward some politician who gets up there and says, I'm sorry. You know, we really are doing most of everything we can do. There might be a few things here. We can you know, free up that. But the American people do not want us doing what we would have to do to get any tougher than where we are now. And I'll tell you what, folks, here's the funny thing. And this history bears this out, at least in the United States. Uh, a lot of other countries, though, too. If you gave in to what these people who say we have to get tough on this now say, you'll hate yourself in the morning, the historical morning. Down the road, your kids will turn around and say, yours was the generation that did blank. We have a lot of those in this country, and every country has those. Things that were done in the past that the people living then are ashamed about, but, you know, they didn't have to live through the fright and all the other predictable human responses. But we can talk about this now, can't we? Maybe I can talk about it now. I'm, I've been to this rodeo now many times. Many of you, I just turned 50. I'm old now, uh, as opposed to yesterday when I was still young. Um, but many of you have been down this road with me. We 50-year-olds have seen a bunch of terror attacks now. And, and the movie is similar and horribly tragic. This is a nightmare of our age. Other ages have had it, by the way. But right now, this is, it's like, and it's like gnats, you know, this is the problem. It's like trying to fight crime. And that's why a lot of people who've, who've looked at this terror situation forever says we have the wrong mindset about it. We think about this like a military victory, but we're fighting a bunch of gnats. And the gnat problem doesn't go away. You don't kill all the gnats. You have to start working out ways to live with them and survive with them. The kind of things you could do to get a little bit tougher on this terrorist problem, folks, are all things that are chewing up some other part of the positive things in society. And I would suggest to you, as I did, you know, after 9-11, that, that that's kind of what the bad guys want. You know, one of the principles of military history has always been don't 
do what your enemy wants you to do. Think about what they might want us to do in terms of reaction. And then ask yourself how you'd strategize this. I think about that all the time. And, you know, I, I, I do so in some ways to cut our leaders some slack. Sometimes the best answer, you know, I've often heard folks say, I kind of like it when Congress isn't getting anything done because at least I know they're not doing anything bad. Sometimes the best answer in these situations is to say we are going to grit our teeth. We are going to continue to champion the open, intellectual, free, pluralistic, tolerant nature of our society that we are so proud of and that so contrasts with yours in the face of your challenge and that the people that die because we did that are our martyrs and we'll celebrate them for the price they paid to keep us free because if we go down the logical path it would go down every time one of these attacks happens and get a little bit tougher and cross another red line we won't be down the road isn't that ironic that the best way to preserve our way of life sometimes might be to avoid the temptation to do something when there's nothing really that will help us get any closer to the goal but that still comes with a price that hurts not the bad guys but us. In spite of what might be implied by watching the news on a daily basis, your chances of being killed by a terrorist is not only not high on the list of likely causes of death, but again, based purely on math, you are many times more likely to be killed by a dairy cow. Now, you may say that you are highly unlikely to be in a field or a barn with a dairy cow, and yet, even though that is probably true, it's still more likely that you would be killed by a dairy cow than that you would be killed by a terrorist. Since 9-11, our nation has spent over $700 billion on Homeland Security. $700 billion. Homeland Security is now a huge industry with thousands of employees, multi-million dollar contracts, and office buildings that rival the office space of the Pentagon and the National Defense Department. And they are devoted to finding terrorist threats and either stopping them or defending against them. We had a speaker at Drury University a few years ago that was there quasi-recruiting, but basically as a Homeland Security public relations uh, speaker, and in the question and answer time, I, I asked him if the flu didn't actually represent a much greater threat to the American population than did foreign terrorists. And that rather than spending $700 billion on Homeland Security, that we could save tens of thousands more lives by encouraging everyone to get the flu shot and by washing their hands regularly. And the speaker was furious at the question. I suspect, in large part, because it is absolutely true 
that the flu represents a greater threat by thousands of times than do terrorists. But news agencies don't find the flu to be interesting enough to talk about. Terrorism is the warfare of the poor. When we go to war, we put people in uniform, we put them on board ships, we put them inside airplanes, we move our armies to a battlefield. But oppressed people who feel that they have a legitimate reason to go to war, but they do not have the equipment of warfare, turn to terrorism. This has almost always been true. You cannot defeat a country like Russia by blowing up a single passenger plane. But you can frighten the population of Russia, and you can humiliate the government by blowing up a commercial passenger plane. They do not have the ability to attack a French military base, but they can attack a French newspaper office or a concert or a market where unsuspecting civilians are vulnerable. They certainly couldn't take on an American naval vessel or take to the air to challenge one of our fighter jets, but they can infiltrate commercial airways, leave a bomb on a city street during the Boston Marathon, and attack the public. Again, that does not amount to defeating the United States in a war, but if you pay close attention to our 24-hour news cycle, it looks like it comes pretty close to it. The point of terrorism is to terrorize. The point of terrorism is to make people scared. It only works if the general population agrees to be scared. Terrorists try to make their numbers, the size of their constituencies, seem many times larger than it actually is through violent scare tactics. And our media plays into the deception. You would think that ISIS is absolutely everywhere, but ISIS has about 30,000 soldiers, largely recruited from the ranks of the dismissed soldiers of Iraq. But their surrounding Arab nations have a standing army of over 4 million. So 30,000, 4 million. So it's, it's not like their military presence is anything like the size that deserves the amount of attention that they get. Prior to the Paris attack, over 40 were killed and more than 200 wounded in two suicide bombings in the neighborhood of Borij Alborajene in southern Beirut. ISIS claimed credit and then a day later attacked Paris. And that sparked a huge reaction on both mainstream and social media. For a while, the world seemed bedecked in the French flag. But amid the displays, a question was raised and raised again. Why Paris and not Beirut? Why didn't the global media mourn for victims in Lebanon? Habib Bata, founder of BeirutReport.com, both asked and answered the question in a post for Al Jazeera. He said for him, it started with a symbol of solidarity that wasn't. 
some Lebanese news sites had posted a picture of the Sydney Opera House lit up with a Lebanese flag. And people had spread this around saying, oh, isn't that nice that, you know, Australia is mourning Lebanese victims because there's so many Lebanese immigrants living in Australia. It turned out that the photo was a photoshopped fake. But I think it really underscored the fact that sadly there was no semblance of mourning for Beirut on the scale that France had been mourned. Now, you noted that the coverage of the two events were not equal. Some journalists, like Max Fisher in Vox, chafe at the charge that the Beirut attacks weren't reported. He said it was covered extensively in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the AP, CNN, The Economist, even the Daily Mail. It's just, he says, that their audiences really don't care about mass acts of violence outside the West. It's not really about the number of articles. It's really about how the articles are written, the framing and the adjectives that are used to describe the victims, for example. The Paris articles were really intimate. We knew about the places where it happened. We knew that there was a rock band playing. You know, some people might identify with that. We knew that there was a stadium and a cafe. But in Beirut, there were almost no quotes, actually, from the victims. There was no mention in Beirut of the school, the hospital, the crowded marketplace that was near this explosion. That kind of rich detail was missing from the initial reporting. The reports overwhelmingly focused on the geopolitical aspects. You know, this is a, a Hezbollah territory. These people are, are just kind of pawns in, in a geopolitical conflict. And uh, specifically, you pointed to the language used to describe the neighborhood there as a Hezbollah stronghold. Like this. The bombers struck a Hezbollah stronghold in southern Beirut. Hezbollah has been fighting ISIS in Syria. 43 people are killed in two suicide blasts in a Hezbollah stronghold in southern Beirut. This neighborhood is a stronghold of Hezbollah, the Lebanese militia fighting alongside Bashar al-Assad's regime in Syria. And that's actually kind of adopting the language of ISIL itself, which is saying that, you know, these aren't people, these are Hezbollah people. They're kind of part of this war, so they kind of deserve it almost. So I think that really colors our perception. Is it just a tragedy or is it a tragedy that's really kind of understandable? And you notice that the language in the New York Times headline changed twice. First it was, blast hits Hezbollah's stronghold in Beirut, killing dozens, worst bombing in years. Then, deadly blast hits Hezbollah area in southern Beirut. And then finally, deadly blast hits crowded neighborhood in southern Beirut. There has been this ongoing discussion about the term stronghold for the past couple of years or so. People have complained very loudly about it. So I think that pressure did play a role here. The New York Times itself ends up doing a whole new Beirut story two days later, almost like a complete retake, where they really drastically change their tone and start interviewing the victims. You had this influx from you know uh, CNN to Time Magazine, the New York Times and others, who basically went ahead and, and did reports quoting a lot of these critiques and quoting even bloggers who actually um, raised this issue as well. So Beirut kind of in this case has come to symbolize a discussion now about why do we care more about Western lives? And I think that the broader impact of that is our lack of compassion for other parts of the world. But then on the other hand, we had a lot of articles that came out more recently kind of saying, well, the reader's fault, kind of very defensive point of view, saying that, you know, we kind of reject this critique and you people don't want to read about world news. That's why we don't publish it on our websites. I mean, we have a system set up where our media is dominated by infotainment and a lot of space is taken up by celebrities. All right, we've all heard those critiques, but let me just yeah. drill down past 
the triviality of our media and all of that down to the level of empathy you referred to. We are wired to care about our own. We care about what's familiar to us. There's a perception of Beirut in the West of a city that is far away and always at war. And maybe Western news consumers and journalists expect attack in Beirut, but they don't in Paris. And they're also familiar with the idea of Paris. People care about what they recognize. The media reflect that. How do you get around that feedback loop? Because you can write those stories over and over and over again, and the result may just be fatigue. Do you have an answer to this? Maybe we have to look at how we can be more innovative in our storytelling. We can also look how we can connect our audience to those living in foreign countries. Instead of, you know, writing about them as pawns in a political game, maybe we can kind of look at them like we look at our own citizens and try to find those same stories. You know, there's also stories of heroism and the Beirut bombing where a man tackled a suicide bomber. Adel Termos, a father of two who threw himself at the second suicide bomber who was approaching a mosque. This was actually covered by CNN. It was. It took a little while, but there are probably a lot of Adel Termos in other countries, and you know, in Pakistan and Africa. Maybe we don't even know about them. But the more connected we are, the more people have a channel to talk back to the media when they have actually messed up. We are seeing a richer environment, a richer kind of give and take. It is encouraging to see that some media are starting to take this conversation seriously. The lights go In an article in the Times, reporter Anne Bernard quotes the Lebanese doctor, Ellie Farris. He says, quote, when my people died, no country bothered to light up its landmarks in the colors of their flag. When my people died, they did not send the world into mourning. Their death was but an irrelevant fleck along the international news cycle, something that happens in those parts of the world. Can you respond to this, Mira? Well, sadly, you know, he's absolutely right. Um, and I credit the New York Times with, with having highlighted that. Even now, uh, there are buildings around the world uh, that are lit up with the colors of the French flag. Facebook has offered people to put the colors of the French flag on their profile pictures. Uh, I was on the, an Indian news show uh, yesterday, uh, and was uh, it was pointed out to me personally that the Shiv, uh, Shivaji Chhatrapati train station in Mumbai, which was the site of uh, one of the uh, you know sites of the terrorist attack in 2008, was sporting the French colors. What can I say? I mean, it's it, we still live in a in a, in a post-colonial imperial world. I think that it's uh, it's it's a tragedy that the kinds of uh, attacks uh, that have happened with such um, in, uh, uh, in unbearable frequency uh, in the Middle East and other parts of the world have, have become banalized. They've become uh, sort of you know something that people think is just sort of normal, and that somehow the suffering unleashed there is not. Uh, of the same order as could be unleashed in a city like Paris or in 9-11 in New York. 
at the same time, uh, Paris is an emblematic kind of city. It's a city that's uh, incredibly important for the entire Western world. Americans have a very romantic image of Paris. That kind of an image is shattered by an event like this, as it was in January. And so it's, it's perhaps not surprising, even if regrettable, if the Western media responds um, inappropriately differently. Paris attacks were barely over before people began using them for their own purposes. They were a reason to reject Syrian refugees, though no refugees appear to have been implicated. They were a reason to increase government surveillance, although the suspects were already on the French government's radar and there's no indication more surveillance would have made any difference. Some even used the attacks as cause to demean anti-racist activism on college campuses. But many people also asked whether this violence might finally cause us to consider how the war on terror may foment rather than prevent such acts, as well as raise questions about media's selective attention to violence around the world and what our guest terms the weaponization of grief. Jim Narikas is editor of FAIR's website and our newsletter extra. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jim Narikas. It's great to be back. Well, nobody wants to be part of a suffering Olympics, but is there something to be said about the differing ways that media have directed our attention and our sympathies in the wake of various violent acts over the last couple of weeks? It is kind of a natural experiment where you have uh, one group carrying out similar attacks in a short period of time against very different targets and against targets that have very different values in the U.S. media system. You have Paris attack, but before that, just before that, there was a twin bombing in Beirut carried out by ISIS, and shortly before that, ISIS apparently brought down a Russian plane over Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. And by looking at how these stories were covered, you see a lot about what the the U.S. media bring to the story, how their ideology and preconceptions change, how they present what are in, in some ways very similar events. Well, we saw how the Paris attack was covered. It was the front page and the top of the news for days and continues to be. Everyone on Facebook changed their icon to the French colors. How does that compare to, for example, the attack in Beirut, which immediately preceded the Paris attacks? Well, that was treated as an incident of passing notice. The New York Times published a story on page 6. And interestingly, at one point, the headline of the New York Times referred to it as an attack against a Hezbollah stronghold. And you saw this, this kind of terminology in different media referring to the suburb that was attacked as a Hezbollah bastion or a Hezbollah area, as if by bombing a, a marketplace in Beirut, 
ISIS was somehow striking a blow uh, against uh, a rival militant group. And actually, as the New York Times story noted, the justification issued by ISIS for killing these people was that they were Shia. They were the wrong kind of Muslim. That was the main reason why they had to die. Well, some people did compare the way media treated the attacks in Paris with the attack in Beirut. But the response from some quarters in the media was to say, well, you can't blame reporters for that. It's really just people. People don't care as much about what happens in Beirut as they do what happens in Paris. You know, kind of blaming the people for it. What do you make of that? There's a sense you get when corporate journalists are being defensive. They think that if you just say something once that you've done your job and uh, no one can complain about the, the relative amount of coverage that you give something. In comparison to the one story that has gone on, on page A6, there were up to 20 stories a day on the, the Paris story, numerous stories on page one. Clearly, the, the mainstream media are signaling with the amount and with the, the placement of the story that this is a story that you should care about. And they are equally signaling that the Beirut story is not a story you particularly should be interested in. We can say that the attack in Beirut got less coverage than the Paris attacks, but if we compare the coverage of Paris to the coverage of the Russian plane uh, that was bombed that went down, that was not just a lack of attention, it was a particular quality of media attention. Yeah, the, it was very striking when, you, when uh, we went back and looked at the coverage how the media were blaming Russia for having ISIS blow up one of its planes. The New York Times listed the bombing of the plane as uh, among bad things that had happened to Russia as uh, they were direct results of Mr. Putin's actions of the, the Russian president. And the Times was mocking Russians because their basic reaction is to shrug and point a finger elsewhere, preferably at the West. Now, uh, the the reason that Putin was to blame for the bombing of the the Russian plane by ISIS was because Russia has been bombing ISIS targets in Syria, just as France has been doing. The, the France and Russia have been doing the exact same thing. ISIS has uh, the same reaction, which is to attack civilians in the, the country that, that is bombing them. And in one case, this shows how reckless and foolish the Russians are, and in the other case, it barely comes up. When you're talking about France, uh, it's very difficult to see the cause and effect relationship between the French attacking this violent group in Syria and the group striking back by attacking civilians in France. It's like it would be rude to, to mention that there is a consequence to French foreign policy. It's not, of course, to justify terrorist acts. It's really just to help us understand them, to get beyond the idea that they are random and out of nowhere, but in fact they occur in a context. Right. It's certainly not to say that the response is justified, but to understand the, the world you, that you live in, you need to actually discuss the actual motivations of the actors in it and, and not pretend that their actions are completely inexplicable and can only be understood in terms of some kind of religious insanity. So when we read coverage that says, you know, the French capital is stunned, wondering why us, you know, that's the kind of context-free coverage that you're talking about. The 
French have been the primary supporters in Europe for the overthrow of the Syrian government, and that has created a, a state of civil war in Syria that created the opening for ISIS to have a base, to have a territory, along with the invasion of Iraq by the United States, uh, which opened up a, a similar space in Iraq. And the idea that there is a connection between French intervention in the Middle East and the creation of this dangerous organization that is killing people in France is really off the table. It's not something that you can talk about because it would be callous to interfere with the grieving process by, by talking about French actions. And this is kind of what I mean by talking about the weaponization of grief, is that you can justify any response to a, a tragedy by acting as though there, there's no precedence for it. So the response to the violence in France can be more French violence in the Middle East, even though there are, are reasons to believe that the previous French violence in the Middle East started a chain of, of events that, that led to the, the slaughter in Paris. This idea of putting acts in a political context and drawing some connection between what a country does and what is done to it. It's not that media never do it. They do do it in some situations, don't they? Shortly after the bombing of the Russian plane, there was an AP piece sort of speculating about whether terrorism could have been behind it. And the AP article said that if it was terrorism, quote, many Russians could reconsider the wisdom of the country's airstrikes in Syria. It's interesting that that is a possibility that is offered by corporate media to the citizens of Russia but is not offered to the citizens of France. And in a way, if you want coverage of your government that you can actually use as a citizen, that allows you to consider the actions of your government as something that has consequences in the real world, uh, you may be better off living under a government that the U.S. media consider to be an enemy than to live under a, a country that they think of as a friend. And it would seem we're even less likely to get that kind of critical treatment of U.S. foreign policy. No, that, that is the, the main thing that you will not get from U.S. media coverage. If you call, we will follow. If you show us, we can tell a Today's show is sponsored by Howl.fm. Howl is a brand new app and website that will change the way you think about podcasts and Howl Premium is where the real gold is. They have exclusive access to the full archives of WTF with Mark Marin, the whole network of Earwolf shows, audio documentaries, comedy albums, and dozens of original miniseries. One of their featured series is called Something Cool, an audio documentary series that focuses on the brilliant careers of criminally underrated artists who deserve to have their stories told. And the first episode is all about a country artist Bobby Gentry, an early feminist icon and independent success who rose to fame with her hit song, Ode to Billy Joe. To access this and a whole bunch of other exclusive content on your iPhone, Android phone, and the web is only $4.99 a month, but when you sign up, you can use the offer code LEFT to get a full month for free so you can really explore their offerings before committing. To redeem that offer code, make sure to create your account on the web at howl.fm and enter the code LEFT at checkout. So go to howl.fm, that's H-O wl.fm and use the promo code left for a one month free trial of Hal Premium. If you call we will follow. If you show us we can tell 
Now, after the attacks in Paris, uh, some in ISIS are emboldened, so they've put together a little videotape that they're going to tell us who's next. They say that they're going to uh, come and hit Washington. Should we ignore that? Of course not. Of course we should take precautions. We're not George W. Bush, who, given a memo saying bin Laden determined to act, attack inside the United States, said, ah, you covered your ass, go home, to his the person who presented that memo to him. No, 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 don't be complacent. Take every precaution you need to take. Be proactive in, yes, ferreting out criminals and terrorists and figuring out who they might be and how they might strike. But should we be terrorized by that? No, that's what they want us to do, right? So if you're thinking, oh, well, then I'm not going to go to Washington. I'm not going to go to Paris. Don't do that. Then they win. Then you let them terrorize you. I, I Look, you can say, hey, it's easy for you to say, I, but I'm, I'm, I go to Washington all the time. I'll go to Washington. I mean, I almost want to fly to Paris right now to, to, to tell them that we're not cowed by them, right? This is not a time to bend our head. So it, there's two ways that you fight back. You don't let them terrorize you. So whether you talk about Washington or later in that video about the European countries, no, we're not going to operate on your terms. And secondly, don't let them change us. That's what we did wrong after 9-11 said, oh, my God, okay, uh, you know, some right-wingers like Joe Scarborough say absurd things like they hate us because they hate us. I'm going to need you to be a little smarter and dive in so we can figure out what the real problem is. Okay, but let's take your simplistic view out of it. They hate us because they hate us. They hate us for what? Who, who are we? They hate us for our freedoms. That's what George Bush used to say all the time, right? And the right-wing pundits said, what are our freedoms? Well, we have due process. Uh, we have all the freedoms laid out in the Constitution. And what did they do? They took some of that away from us. They took away due process. They took away uh, right to privacy. They said, no, 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 we, we are going to search uh, your phone records, your Internet searches. We're going to look at all that without getting a warrant. We're going to cast a wide net. We're going to take away some of those liberties. Well, then you, you're responding to the terrorists and giving them what they want. No, this is a moment when you have to be strong and say, no, no, no we stand for freedom. We stand for liberty. And we're not going to take that away. And you're not going to restrict our liberty. We're going to go to Washington. We're going to go to Paris. And we're going to keep doing things our way. And our way means we respect our citizens and we respect their rights. Whatever you do, don't be so scared of the terrorists that you change who we are. That's what they want most of all. Don't give them that pleasure. Hell no. We're Americans. We're French. And we stand by our principles.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism opposed the obnoxiously named American Safe Act of 2015. After the holiday, we're going to dive deeper into the content devoted specifically to the Syrian refugee crisis in the wake of the Paris attacks. But with the urgency of a pending vote, we're not waiting to take action on this dangerous legislation. A sizable percentage of Congress is so terrified of ISIS that they're attempting to pass legislation to make an already excruciatingly exclusionary process applying for political asylum basically impossible. The U.S. has only agreed to take 10,000 of the 4 million Syrian refugees as it is. The American SAFE Act would halt their entry into the country. France, on the other hand, isn't turning away either the climate summit or the refugees coming to them for help. French President Hollande, addressing the issue, said, quote, Some people say the tragic events of the last few days has sown doubts in their minds, unquote, but then added that taking people in is a, quote, humanitarian duty. TheNation.com has put out a letter reminding Congress of our nation's part in creating the climate that has led to the current crisis, admonishing the 30 Republican governors illegally refusing to take refugees and asking Congress to act with humanity. You can add your name through the link, Open Letter to Congress, Do Not Cede to Fear, on the nation's homepage. Then, speak out against the American SAFE Act, which passed the House 289 to 137, a majority that includes 47 Democrats. The Huffington Post made a list of those Democrats for easy shaming. Look up your senators and representatives using contactingthecongress.org where you can get everything from their mailing address to their social media handles. Use the vote list compiled by the Huffington Post to let those 46 Democrats in the House who voted for the bill know you're holding them accountable and tell your senators to vote no on the American SAFE Act when it comes to the floor in the Senate. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. If humanity and decency matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the American Safe Act via social media so that others in your network can speak against it too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change But honestly, we only call it terrorism if uh, a Muslim does it. If you were listing terrorists from the perspective of a schoolgirl in Pakistan or from the perspective of a farmer in Afghanistan, they might be more likely to think that the people that operate the drone policy that has resulted in tens of thousands of deaths in their countries as terrorists. People in Syria might think that American, French, British, and Russian bombers that kill people in their neighborhoods and villages, they would say that they are terrorists. As was reported in the New York Times this week, Mr. Hollande actively stepped up French participation in the military air campaign in Syria at the end of September. Just last week, France attacked oil operations under the Islamic State's control in Syria. On October 8th, it conducted a targeted strike against militants in Raqqa, Syria, apparently targeting, targeting the Salim, a French citizen fighting for uh, the Islamic State. So while there are people waking up in France saying, we didn't do anything to provoke this, we are not at war with, with uh, Syria, 
in Syria, they are aware that the French have been bombing their country heavily for months. We tend to see a terrorist attack like the one in Paris as a standalone crazy crime. But there are no coins that only have one side. And our media has been nearly apoplectic talking about the horror in Paris without even mentioning the fact that Beirut and Baghdad have been attacked just a day or two earlier. No one in the American press was screaming for an all-out war on ISIS when they brought down a Russian commercial plane. And I get it. I've got a friend in Paris. I called Brigitte to be sure that she was okay as soon as I heard about the shootings. We tend to identify as Western Europeans more than we do with Middle Eastern or Eastern Europeans because we're more likely to have family and friends there. We're more likely to have vacationed there. We have some sense of identity there. But really, come on, does it really matter if you are sleepless and frightened in Beirut or sleepless and frightened in Paris. We can all agree that terrorism is evil. We can agree that public beheadings, the deaths of innocent civilians, in almost all of these events is horrible. But if we're honest, we must admit that we do not see these things taking place in a vacuum. There are reasons why ISIS can recruit people and why some people can even be driven to the point of becoming a suicide bomber. They do not hate us for our freedoms, though they are often offended by many of our cultural customs. What they hate us for is sending the CIA to overthrow the government of Iran and install Reza Pahlavi as their shah. They are mad about our manipulation of their governments for access to their natural resources and to control their borders and their trade. For the most part, the Arab Muslim world loves the West. They want to engage in our economy. They like our technology. They like many of our products. They don't want to be occupied, and they don't want to have their culture extinguished by our movies and our music and our foods and our culture. But who does? How would we react to constant occupation or manipulation of our government, our economy, and even the products on our shelves by foreign governments? I am horrified by the civil war in Syria. I'm heartbroken for the millions of refugees. We hear of politicians screaming that we can't just sit back and watch, that we have to bomb them, we have to extinguish them, we have to do something to stop ISIS. And a part of me certainly agrees with that sentiment. But I would remind you of the Hippocratic Oath that doctors are supposed to live by, to pledge that in the practice of medicine, they will do no harm. First order of business. If you can't help them, don't hurt them. Don't do something just to do something. We keep deposing tyrants to install someone we think will be better, only to find out that in almost every case we make things significantly worse. There's a bloody civil war going on in Syria, but if the West brings the United States, France, uh, Britain, Italy, if we bring our air force and military to help the rebels, and Russia brings their air force and military to help the Assad government, then the only thing we can be certain of is that tens of thousands of innocent Syrians will die. 
If we can't help, we should be resolved to not hurt. As hard as it is for us to sit out a good war. If only we could topple bad governments and install good governments, it would be worth doing. But anyone with an awareness of modern history knows that our track record is horrible. Ever since 9-11, we have assumed the posture that every terrorist act calls for us to make a horrifying and disproportionate punch back, telling ourselves this will stop them. But it doesn't. It only makes it worse. And now we have lots of people demanding that we do it again when we know it has never worked. What invading? ISIS exists because we invaded Iraq. If we had not invaded Iraq, ISIS would not exist now. So we, so we struck back against what we said were terrorists. It turns out, wrong country. I don't know how you wipe that away. But we invaded the wrong country and created ISIS. And now they're saying that we need to do it all over again. And it has to be said, that is exactly what ISIS wants us to do. They are not frightened by the prospect of a war with the West. In fact, a war with the West is what they want. That is their goal. They suffer from delusions that they could win such a war with Allah's help without ever seeming to notice that Allah just doesn't get involved with that sort of thing. Rationally, does it really make sense for us to do what ISIS wants us to do? I would remind you of the tragic murder of nine innocent people at the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston this past summer. The shooter, a domestic terrorist, went into this historic church that has a long history that began in their organized opposition to slavery and continued in leadership roles throughout the civil rights movement. And this deranged white supremacist thought that if he went to that specific church, the most famous church in his state, as he described it, and murdered a lot of black people, that he could start a race war. And he assumed that his, his race would win that war because, after all, he and his constituency have been stockpiling weapons for that war for a century now. But there was no race war ignited in the June 17th murder because on June 18th, there were surviving church members that spoke up about forgiveness and reconciliation. They didn't punch back. And by the time a week had passed, that church was covered in flowers and filled with donations from white people all over the country, including us. I collected your donations and, and took the check to Charleston myself and delivered our sympathy, our support, our commitment to compassion to them in person. And one of the people that Dylan Roof had hoped would then hate people like you and me enough to want to kill us, came out onto the sidewalk in front of Mother Emanuel Church in the 100-degree day in June in Charleston, South Carolina, and she hugged me and we wept together and pledged our love to each other. Because they have shown us a better way than hitting back. The United States government did not bomb Shelby, North Carolina, even though that's where they found Dylan Roof. 
They did not bomb Lexington, South Carolina, where he lived. That's the nest of racist sympathizers that produced him. They just arrested Dylan Roof and put him in a cage where dangerous animals deserve to be. But there was no hint of us needing to kill his relatives or his friends with drone strikes. Or, for that matter, to turn around and invade Canada, because a lot of people in Canada kind of look like Dylan Roof. The way we invaded Iraq, because they lived in the same global neighborhood and were the same shade of brown as the people from Saudi Arabia who had attacked us. I do not know what the comprehensive answer to the threat of terrorism is, but I do know one thing. Doing things that create more terrorists is not the answer. We need to stop manipulating the internal affairs of foreign governments, and we need to stop trying to use the military to address every global crisis. As President James Madison said over 200 years ago, war is the parent of armies, and armies necessitate debt, and taxes, and those are the known instruments of putting the many under the domination of the few. So no nation can maintain freedom while being in a perpetual state of war. The war on terrorism was a decision to be in a perpetual state of war. Even if we use Deceptive language like the Patriot Act to say that we're going to take away your freedoms because of our patriotism or because of your fear of terrorists, we are then going to draw you under the thumb of a federal government. Ladies and gentlemen, 32,000 people a year are killed by guns in the United States by Americans. In the entire history of our country, we have hardly lost 4,000 lives to terrorism at all. In my lifetime, over a million Americans have been killed by guns, and yet we don't even want to have that conversation in public. We can't even get the Congress and the Senate to discuss it. Terrorism does not represent a global threat unless you are willing to give them that power. Real global peace will be achieved through the raising of the standard of living of people everywhere. It is very rare. There are exceptions, but it is very rare to find a terrorist that had a good job and owned a home and had a family. When we raise the standard of living for people in every country, the kind of anger that seems to produce terrorism will start to go away, especially if we do the basics of providing clean water, housing, education, health care, and a chance to live free to people everywhere. We will not create the world we hope for at the tip of a spear. We've spent more than $2 trillion in the last decade and killed half a million people proving that you don't create peace and democracy at the tip of a spear. Now we can try something else something smarter, something more kind, something more effective. For today, I simply beg you to stop being afraid. Hi, Jay. Aaron from Philly. I'm calling with some thoughts on the most recent show on Israel-Palestine and also the events in France this past weekend and Beirut, Baghdad, 
uh, the Russian airliner all over the world and the things that Daesh has done in those places. As far as the Israel-Palestine show goes, I thought Sam Cedar's proposal for a peace agreement and a two-state solution was one of the most comprehensive and I think realistic, if not easy to implement, solutions that I've ever come across in dealing with the situation. Just want to quickly point out that that was David Pakman with his ideas for a peace plan, not Sam Cedar. However, the one part that troubles me is where he says that all Hamas rocket attacks would have to cease or the agreement would essentially be considered void. The problem that I have with that part of it, and it's always, of course, going to be a precondition for a peace agreement with Israel and Palestine, which is why I find it so concerning, is that it's far too open to sabotage. Anybody who can get their hands on a rocket launcher, which probably isn't as easy as it sounds, even in somewhere like Gaza, but all the same, when there are that many weapons floating around, all somebody has to do is fire a rocket into Israel and claim that it was Hamas, and the whole thing goes up uh, in smoke, pardon the analogy. And the way that I tie this into the weekends or the past week's events in various parts of the world with Daesh is that it's pretty well known that at this point, it's something I've read in several sources, that Daesh, uh, ISIS, to use the term that I've uh, recently read, we should stop using in favor of Daesh because that name really pisses them off and doesn't give them as much legitimacy, that they will claim responsibility for attacks that they had nothing to do with just to bolster their street cred. And there's also a letter that was found, or a memo that was found, among Osama bin Laden's papers that he wrote in 2004 where he essentially said, all I have to do is send two men with a flag that says Al-Qaeda on it to any point on the globe, and every general in the Western world will go chasing after it with a new army. It's just way too easy in an asymmetric situation like this, where you have a terrorist group on one side, or a paramilitary group, if you want to call Hamas that, and the conventional thinking of large countries with gigantic armies and lots of fancy military equipment, it's hard not to play their game. And I think it's something you might end up playing on the show if you if you do a show on this issue anytime soon, is there was a really good episode of Common Sense, Dan Carlin, just yesterday, where he talks about how it's almost like the Muhammad Ali and George Foreman fight back in the day. George Foreman could have leveled Muhammad Ali with one with one punch, but Ali ended up winning the fight because all he had to do was keep jabbing and jabbing and jabbing and wearing down Foreman's defenses until he was too tired to hit back. Anyway, it, this is obviously just such a complicated situation. We're in really new territory. I know, and everybody who listens to the show clearly knows that we haven't figured out how to deal with it yet. I just worry that whenever we lay this condition that's so easily broken by one side, the asymmetric side, as they call it, by anybody who can claim responsibility for actions on behalf of that side, it just really sets us up for never achieving the goals that we all want to achieve. And I don't know if we've got a good way to respond to that right now. Anyway, this has been 
weighing a lot on my mind for the last few days as it has everybody else's and want to open up some discussion. Thanks again, Jay. Stay awesome. Hey, Jay. It's Ryan from Phoenix. Just wanted to call in. I'm a little behind. I'll listen to some of the podcasts, but I have a feeling that you're going to have a show that reacts to the carnage that happened in Paris, uh, and I want to chime in on that uh, while you're getting your clips together. The tensions that have been growing about this and the refiring up of the war on terror has really, you know, put us back into like this uh, post 9-11 mindset, renewed commitment to uh, getting after those bastards uh, mentality and also a lot of Islamophobia. That's unfortunate. And so there's a lot of talk about extremism. And I think that extremism in the American context is an interesting consideration. One, you have the Muslim extremists, quote-unquote, and then you have a certain amount of Christians in this country that uh, would never consider themselves extremists. But I've seen people or seen videos and seen interviews where somebody will ask a Muslim about their uh, likelihood to go to hell. And they're like, well, if you're not a Muslim, you are destined to go to hell. It's just, just the rule. And then Christians are like, oh, my God, I can't believe that you think of me as such a bad person, but I'm going to go to hell. But then you have Christians who will blatantly say, it's not my uh, you know, decision. If you don't accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're going to, to hell. I mean, so here we are at this crossroads of, of defense uh, based on this totally irrational uh, concept. And, you know, this, this irrationality leads through all these discussions and all the arguments between Islam and Christians. And I just don't see how we cut through the BS when we're uh, under, you know, things like we're, we belong to a Christian nation and our laws are divine, divine inspiration. And then, you know, you have Sharia law on the other side. And all that is totally irrational stuff that, that says that man has no right to once make up the rules and, and this rational, logical behaviors of, of what we conceive to be fair and just and right. And because, you know, God knows better. And so it's that irrational type of foundation that I don't think that uh, we can move past. So a secular agreement is the foundation to any kind of rational discussion. And uh, I hope that that uh, helps bring come to the surface. Side note, uh, looking for a new support, maybe you can ask people to do what I have done with my wife and ask to become a member for Christmas present uh, or Happy Holidays. That's what you so choose. So, great show, Jay. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Kitty Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. Now, what I had planned to do today was an episode about Black Friday and labor rights and capitalism and all of that good stuff. Uh, because, of course, as we all know, Thanksgiving is coming right up and with Black Friday the day after. And then the terrorists really screwed up my schedule. So there will be a rerun for the holiday that comes out on Friday addressing all those issues. It's just 
the one from last year. And now I just have to tell you today about the alternatives to Black Friday that I hoped to have uh, promoted on today's show anyways. So you may have heard that REI had a big campaign going opt outside. Uh, All of the REI stores are going to be closed for Black Friday, so good for them for doing that and encouraging people to get outside into nature rather than shopping. And as part of that campaign, it turns out that Tennessee, at least, maybe other places, are doing free guided hikes on Black Friday. And since my family lives in Tennessee, and that's where we're going for the holiday, we're going to go on a guided hike. And uh, maybe there are other places doing similar things, so check your local listings. So as soon as we told my mother that, hey, look, there are guided hikes going on in, in Tennessee, would we like to do one of those? She promptly registered us, I guess maybe you had to sign up ahead of time, for a guided Trail of Tears hike on Black Friday. So the day after Americans are you know, sitting down to remember to be thankful for stuff and the American Indians mark a day of mourning, which is not made up, that is a totally real thing, I'll be headed out to learn about one of the most famous atrocities committed in the name of white supremacy against the people who were here long before Columbus discovered them. Oh, it's complicated to be an American. So get yourself and your kids into nature, stay out of the stores, and take at least a moment to think about how not everyone living in America has the same positive impression of that original Thanksgiving feast as you might. And now... Shame. 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 As you may recall, last week I started a memory aid and motivation service for listeners who had every intention of supporting the show and just hadn't gotten around to it yet. And uh, so we originally heard from Kyle from Vancouver, Washington, and Michelle from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm very sorry to say uh, that they have not begun supporting the show yet, as far as I can tell. And now we have a new addition. Hey, Jay, this is Dan from Maine calling to be publicly shamed on Best of the Left. I've been listening for about six months now and am constantly telling myself to become a paying member. I spend a lot of money on a lot of junk I don't need. Uh, iTunes has probably seen over $1,000 from me over the past year, and it's great to have that music, but you're my only source of news at this point because I don't have time to listen to all the other podcasts that are great and phenomenal, and you put it together in a way that just really get the information out there, your activism portion, um, listener call-ins are just amazing, and it's about time to, to support something that I use and helps motivate me to be a better activist, so feel free to publicly shame me until you see my account. All right, thanks, Jay. Bye. Since starting this sort of impromptu membership drive, I'm very excited to say that about 25 new members have signed up just in the last couple of weeks. That is excellent. Thanks so much to everyone who, who signed up. Uh, side note, none of whom needed to be publicly shamed on the show. But in that same time period, there were also five cancellations. You know, as I said before, the slope had been going down recently, uh, which is sort of nerve-wracking for a person who depends on the support of listeners to run a show. And, you know, so you get a few new members, but you get a few cancellations and sort of evens out or kind of starts drifting downwards. And so it is excellent to have begun to counteract that curve, but you can understand the constant battle it is trying to keep memberships at least stable, right? 
So I started this little member drive just to sort of see where it would go. And now 25 new members have already signed up. Seems like a great place to start. So here's the idea. Why don't we just aim for an even hundred by the end of the year? That seems utterly doable. And now that we have a goal in mind, it's going to be more fun to achieve anyways. Memberships are six bucks a month. You can get one for yourself or make it part of your gift giving this year. Existing members could upgrade their membership level if they wanted to, and that would be counted towards the tally. And any new members who sign up at a higher level, like 10 bucks a month, will count as two new members in the tally. And then of course, everyone gets access to members bonus content. So everybody wins. Uh, so thanks again to those who helped kick off this campaign. Here are their names. David, Timothy, Jill, Mary, Derek, Lorna, Shane, Robert, who we actually heard from. Hey, Jay. This is Rob from New Hampshire again. I wanted to call to let you know that I am now a subscribing member. Feeding my dues. You know, I keep saying I'm going to do it eventually. Maybe this day. Maybe this week. No, I'm going to do it because you know what? There's nothing wrong with a little bit of a... Uh, public shaming. So I'm doing it now. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Keep up the good work. And continuing, Eric, Jessica, Cynthia, Kathleen, Janine, David, Thomas, Lance, Susan, John, Matthew, Charlie, Andrew, Barry, and Jonathan. If you want to join the effort, simply sign up at the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Uh, keep in mind there is an alternative to PayPal that you can use now. Details are on that page. I will just keep a running tally going right here and the show so we all know how close we're getting. And, you know, if you're not in front of a internet device at the moment, you can't sign up at this instant. And you too would like a little external motivation to help you remember to sign up for a membership. You can submit your pledge for use on the wall of shame. Or if you want to call in and I- explain why you signed up as a member and how good it makes you feel. Everyone can leave messages at 202-999-3991. 25 new members in the last two weeks. It's excellent. Help us get an additional 75 to close out the year on a strong note. Thanks so much. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who have already supported the show through the years by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found on the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our sad stories And wonder what we're missing Past our own sad stories and one.